0: This season, I have teamed up with Blue Microphones. I have been a huge fan of their products for years now. My partner actually gave me a Blue Yeti microphone for my birthday a couple of years ago, and that's what I used to record Season 1. So to now be working together on Season 2 is just so great. Blue's award-winning products have helped countless podcasters, musicians, YouTube creators and Twitch streamers find and amplify their voices. So, if you're looking to share your passion with the internet, definitely check out Blue Mics. Hello, I'm Antonia Preville, and you are listening to The Most of It, a podcast where I endeavour to find the answer to one big question How do we make the most of our lives? In this episode, I am speaking to Sarah Wilson, who ranks as one of the 200 most influential authors in the world, so she is a pretty big deal. She is the founder of the I Quit Sugar Empire, but today I am talking to her about her most recent publication, This One Wild and Precious Life. It is an incredible book that goes into what Sarah considers is the central disorder of modern existence, disconnection. She discusses how we've disconnected from ourselves, from each other, and also from major global issues that desperately need our attention. Having hiked around the world to gain wisdom from some of the world's leading experts, Sarah draws on science, literature, philosophy and her own personal journey to find out why we do retreat into disconnection and turn to distractions that ultimately derail our lives and turn us away from what really matters. Sarah's activism and honest, no-nonsense attitude serves as a wake-up call to confront what is collectively being avoided. She is a revolutionary thinker and really encourages us to re engage with life as we really should. I am so happy to have her as part of this series. She is truly an extraordinary woman, and I hope you really enjoy our chat.
1: Hello, Sarah. Well, hello. We, we finally get to chat to each other.
0: I am just so incredibly thrilled to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for giving up your time. I am a huge fan of yours and have been for years. Your new book, This One Wild and Precious Life, I just think is pretty extraordinary. For anyone who hasn't read it, it's a call to arms at a soul level to wake up and face the social and economic problems that we are facing in the world today against the very real scary backdrop of the
1: climate crisis. That is the best little snapshot statement. I wish I'm going to have to go back and listen to that bit and take notes. You know, it can become my elevator pitch. (laughs) You can have it. You can absolutely
0: have it. Yeah. Uh, It's really extraordinary. And what I found so compelling about it is that you're writing about these very difficult issues from the inside because we're charting your experience as you find out about these things and as you find the answers. So it's this amazing combination of subjectivity and objectivity because you back up everything you say with so much uh, scientific evidence and philosophical thought. It's really quite something and I found it extremely affecting on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. But I thought just to give a bit of context to how you got to be in a position to want to write this book and to be able to write this book, maybe we'd just start back a bit and see how you got there. Yeah. I'd love to know if we go way back because you started your career in quite a different place to where you are now. You were in magazines, you were the editor of Cosmopolitan, which does seem on the outside to be quite a stark contrast to the values that you live by now. So I'm just wondering, have things really changed for you since that time or were you able to navigate that world with the values that you still have.
1: Yeah, it's a strange juxtaposition. You know, I edited a Bible of stuff no one really needs. And and now, of course, I preach. I say the word preach because I suppose I, I live it. I preach by living it and then trying to show that way of living as a joyful, alternative to the status quo as opposed to standing on the pulpit and pointing down at people or at least that's my aim but look you're right when I was the editor of Cosmopolitan these subjects were largely not discussed but I lived it I've lived this way all my life so I rode a bike to work which um, you know for magazine editors that just wasn't really cool it was a real status symbol to be able to drive your car into the company car park and in fact a lot of sort of I don't know, status stuff happened between the car park and the office. But I arrived on my bike with a bike helmet and active wear. I also never owned a handbag. I was offered that many handbags during my time. I can imagine you would be offered them every day, every second of the day. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Lots of free shit I just really didn't want or need. And so, yeah, it was just something that I did my own way. And I think there were a number of staff who worked for me who noticed it. And started to live that way and started to think about things and that's how I've always tried to do things is just by doing it myself first because I'm a really uncertain person. I don't really know if what I'm doing is the right way to do things and so I do it and I run the experiment and I see if it takes off and it has some charm but that way of living is just simply how I preferred to live. I didn't think about it too much to finish your question, which is to explain how I got to writing this book, I then went into television and I hosted MasterChef Australia the first season and that sat very uncomfortably with me. Did it? Yeah, it was not the right thing for me. I felt like a square peg being shoved into a round hole and, no, I was in my mid-30s by that stage and TV can be quite vacuous if you're just the person that tops and tails the ad breaks, which is essentially what my role was reduced to. And it's just the circumstances, the limitations of TV. And it just wasn't right for me. I was itching to get on with deeper conversations. And so... I then started up the I Quit Sugar kind of, I think it's referred to it often as an empire. I don't know if I'd go that far, but, you know, it was a big project that I ran for about six years, seven years. In fact, you know what? In January 2021, it's my 10 year anniversary of having first quit sugar. So it's, you know, it's been a decade. Happy anniversary. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that was another sort of experiment in just trying to lead my way to better things, undoing stuff that we take for granted and we assume is just the status quo, and that's the way it's always going to be, especially in that consumer cycle. My thoughts just developed, developed. I put out, first, we make the beast beautiful, which was my way of going on a journey to investigate my own anxiety. And by the way, the I Quit Sugar stuff was my journey to investigate my health.
0: I wanted to ask you about that. So, because you, you stopped Cosmo because you had to, right? Because your health sick. kind
1: of yep. brought you to your knees. Mm. Can you talk us through what happened? Yeah, I developed, well, there's two ways. The medical diagnosis is I developed an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. I left it so long to get it treated and I relied on my adrenals to kind of go, 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 go. And of course that ground me into a metabolic adrenal heat. At the same time, I had a relationship breakdown, like everything was happening at once. I was in my early thirties. I just wasn't coping the stress of the work, etc. And, um, I just collapsed in a, in a heap with a very, very heavy case of Hashimoto's or thyroid disease. The Prince of Wales Hospital here, they said to me it was the worst case they'd ever seen and they were like, how are you indeed vertical? And I'm like, I don't wow. know. <laughs> so I was pretty sick by the time I actually got some help um, and I'd done a fair bit of damage to my body and it took many years to kind of modulate myself back. But from my point of view, from a sort of a metaphysical point of view or f- spiritual point of view, I feel it was my body basically doing what my head wouldn't do, which was to stop me. And look, I would have kept going, 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 and then I'd be in my 70s too creaky to even play lawn bowls with my friends and then i die. That was going to be my trajectory unless something stepped in and gave me a wake-up call. And in my latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, you might recall, Antonia, there's this quote from Dr. James Hollis, this incredible Jungian psychiatrist to I interview, and he has this wonderful phrase, and he says, our souls call us to an appointment with life, and it might take the form of an illness, and in my case, back in my sort of early to mid-30s, that's what happened to me, and I had a few taps on the shoulder. My soul was going, come on, and then, of course, it got louder and louder and louder until I finally took notice and quit the job, I had a temptation back into TV with MasterChef again I got sick again this, my soul did another little tap on the shoulder and eventually I packed everything up and moved up to Byron Bay and lived in a army shed in the forest and um, decided to have a good hard look at myself you know well that's when I quit sugar I quit sugar and I tried all these different ways of sorting myself out basically and one of those experiments was quitting sugar and I thought I'll just give it a go for a week and then I thought no I'll give it a go for two weeks and then I felt better I started to feel like tangibly better clearer more energy I was sleeping my skin cleared up and with Hashimoto's your whole body falls apart and so when you start to feel a bit better it's quite noticeable. So, and I just kept going and going and going. And, and then, of course, went down deeper and deeper rabbit holes, learning, investigating, sharing the information. And that became the template for my career. For the last 10 years, that is how I've run my career. And I've done that, as you would know from reading the book, by living on the road, you know, as a nomad. I arrived up there in that army shed with two suitcases worth of belongings that's all I had left because I'd literally been stripped of everything I lost all my money I couldn't work for a year I couldn't walk for nine months so I was stripped of everything and I just didn't replace it and so I wound up two years ago when I finally sort of had to come back to Sydney bunker down of course the last year you know been stuck here. And I wound up with one 15 kilo backpack of belongings. So I whittled it all the way, the way down. So the most recent book continued the journey from first, we make the beast beautiful. And what I realized is that the anxiety I'd been investigating in the beast, the internal anxiety was now playing out at a collective global level. Like we are all anxious. We've got a a global itch, a global sense of dis-ease or unease. And um, I felt that the journey I'd been on needed to go outwards, out into the world, which is deeply uncomfortable because I've spent most of my life avoiding humanity, avoiding humans. And I think I say this in the book, I love humanity with all of my heart. And that's what I've dedicated, you know, the rest of my life to is preserving it and helping it in any way that I can, but humans I find very hard. But I had to go back out onto the road, interview people, talk to where everybody was at and find a path that I felt didn't exist. So I've been, you know, involved in the climate movement one way or another for much of my adult life. You know, I've been an activist in one form or another, you know, during all these Mm. these kind of weird jobs, you know, and I should have said before Cosmo, I worked for Rupert Murdoch for five years. I was at the Coalface and I felt that the messaging around the climate movement just wasn't cutting through. I mean, we're seeing this, right? We know the information, but we are burying our heads in the sand and scrolling through our phones and buying more stuff and just hoping it'll go away because we are so overwhelmed by it. It is bigger than anything we've ever had to
0: face. And still abstract a lot of the time. I mean, when the bushfires happen, less abstract, but most of the time it's a hyperobject, right? Correct. you talk about. Can you define to us what a hyperobject is?
1: Yeah, a hyperobject, it's not my term, it comes from some other prolific writer whose name is just temporarily escaping me, you'll have to excuse me, it was an early start this morning. He won't mind. <laughs> That's right, you're probably not listening. Um, Hyperobjects are phenomenon that are so large and so vast that we find it very hard to stand back and witness it from a distance because we're in it. And the climate crisis is probably the best example of that. We are ensconced in it. What that means is that, and this is probably the the itchiest, scariest aspect of all of this, is that we are both victim and perpetrator in this crisis. It's a tough position, isn't it? we are not equipped for it because when we are dealing with a crisis, generally we have an enemy who is over there, an other. So a war, we had the Nazis or there's the communists or the whatever it is, there's this sort of big bad enemy out there. And that then enables us to kind of come together as a tribe and collectively fight this enemy that's out there. And that's how we've survived as humans and we've galvanised and activated in an emergency. But in this case, we have got a very strong awareness that we are the perpetrator. We are the enemy. That is hyper, hyper. It's so hard to stand back from that. And as you say, you know, it's so abstract. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to sort of tie it up and put it on a shelf and go, all right, that's what we're going to do about it. It's also a really big cognitive shift and life shift. We have to change the way we do things, not for a little period of time, like a year, you know, like a war, you would galvanise for a certain period of time and there's this sense that it will end and then we can go back to normal. We are also aware that is not possible for the crisis that we're in. So anyway, I figured that everything we've been doing so far, using sort of the same logic and mentality that got us into the problem in the first place was not working. We needed to find a better way. And I I really sweated over this. The book was due in two or three months and I still hadn't found a path forward and a hopeful path forward, which is what my promise was when I delivered the concept to my publisher. And it's also the promise I've made to myself and to the readers because you love humanity. That's right. They need hope. We need hope. The world doesn't need another book on stuff, right? I mean, if I was going to write a book, I really wanted to contribute something that might be helpful. So I really, really went down deep and it was, you know, as is always the case, the solution that I end up merging with and it became the thread throughout the book was so simple. I won't give too much away, but I'll have to give this away. Essentially, we will fight for what we love, right? That's what humans do. We are beautiful like that. If we love it enough, we'll do everything to fight for it. You know, we see those stories of women mothers who can lift a car off their toddler, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we will do that and we find this kind of freaky-like strength when required. We galvanised in World War II and I think the US economy went from a consumer economy to a world war economy in two weeks and nobody thought that was possible you know all of a sudden the highest tax rate was 94% there was rations blackouts there was a whole range of things and when we love something enough and we want to preserve it we will fight for it so my feeling was we need to swing things around to a positive we love nature we also know that we're not connected and when i say nature i don't just mean trees and birds i mean our nature Our nature as humans who wish to connect and to to belong to humanity in a really meaningful way, that is our nature. And we've become disconnected from that over the last, I'd say, 50 years. How have
0: we become so disconnected? Because I love how really you drill down to our problem with massive disconnection with ourselves, with each other, and the resultant lack of meaning that we feel is in fact the same issue as our acedia, the moral asleepness to the climate crisis, right? Like it's boiling down to the same issue and that's just different kind of strands of the same thing. Um, There's been a lot of dialogue
1: over the last couple of years about loneliness. There's this loneliness epidemic and, and, you know, it's great to put a name to things and then we can talk about it as though it's happening out there again, you know, out there somewhere. There's this issue that somebody, you know, that's been caused by something else. What I actually drill down to early on in the book is that our loneliness isn't like Loneliness from other people, social connections, because we've got more than ever before, right? Like, yeah. in fact, if anything, we're overwhelmed and exhausted by it. But what we're lacking is meaningful connections. And that's not just with other people, but it's also with ourselves and with life. And you mentioned that word acedia, which is a Greek word. It applies to this moral aloneness that we feel, where we feel disconnected from the matrix of meaning, the whole point of life, the fabric of our existence. And we have been disconnected from that over the last couple of decades. And I'll talk to you why in a moment. And so, it's so hard for us to feel uh, connected and fired up and to then to preserve because we've lost sight of what we love. Now, the, reason, the tangible reasons why that has happened, and, of course, I drill down in the book, In part, technology, but, again, it's too easy just to go, oh, it's our devices. Well, actually, not so much because technology only about enables. It enables our best or our worst behaviours, right? And what it's enabled is this disconnect, that's been happening behind the scenes for some time. And technology has just accelerated and accentuated that. We were getting lazy in our connections and that made us even lazier. It's cocooned us from the discomfort, right? That always happens when we have to go out and connect.
0: Connections are are hard. Because you have to be vulnerable and you open your heart and you might get hurt. And seen. And seen even, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we have technologies that preserve us from all of that and there's so much to say on that. We could go down that rabbit hole. But then the third piece to all of this is capitalism. And as you know, I, look, it's really funny. When I was writing the book, I was tentative about this. I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to get the trolls coming after me saying I'm a communist you know etc etc and then covid happened and then a whole range of things the whole trump fiasco was speeding up and all of a sudden i went oh no i can go hard on this i can actually dial this up a little bit so i refer to capitalism as being a cult it's exactly mm-hmm. like a cult and as you know i line up the definition of a cult and show that capitalism fits every single descriptor and we have been you know, caught up in it since I'd say the late 1880s when capitalism, you know, sort of industrialization took off. It has sped up since the ni- late 1970s when neoliberalism arrived, which was with Thatcher and Reagan. And what that did, and I'm just sort of steering it back to why it is that we've become disconnected, you know, this moral ascedia has crept in. We used to have these moral umpires all throughout history that. Kept us on the, you know, singing to the same moral hymn sheet, if you like, you know, the church would tell us keep the Sabbath sacred. So we have a day off so that we're not overworked and we are almost enforced. It's a guardrail. Mm-hmm. It puts a boundary around our family and rest, right? So that was a really great thing. Then we had human relations departments and we had trade unions that would ensure that we weren't on call 24-7 with no boundaries where we get exhausted by humanity, etc. right? We had all these things. We also had sort of time for ethical discussions. We had philosophers who were part of our lives and these things were discussed. And I think religion and spirituality played a really central role in this. Neoliberalism got rid of them all because it was all about individual freedom, right? So our generation, that's what we grew up with. Millennials, Gen Y, Gen X, uh, to a slightly lesser extent because we have a memory of what it was like. I'm 40, almost 47 now. I know what it was like beforehand, you know. Mm -hmm. I had some of my adulthood in a time before all of this. But in the main, this is how we've all been living for the last 30 years. And so, we haven't had the moral guardrails that have made those decisions for us. So, we're exhausted because we don't know how to fit that into also earning a living and keeping up with everything else. We've got technology that enables a sort of a distraction and a disconnect from meaningfulness. And we've arrived in you know, the beginning of 2021, absolutely exhausted from it all, disconnected with these false distracting connectors, and we feel empty and lost, and so we get overwhelmed by the idea of the climate crisis. We don't know what to do, and so we, we do nothing. We're in a car cruising towards a brick wall, and we're scrolling through our phones, or arguing about where to sit, which is I think something David Suzuki said. We're cruising towards a brick wall in the car and we're arguing about where we're going to sit. And it's all distraction because we can't cope with this hyper object.
0: How you defined our experience of life is I think so many people will respond to that. I know I certainly do. When that sense deep in your guts that we're not doing it right like surely this experience of our lives is not the one mm-hmm. that humans are supposed to have and that we have got away from our nature because it surely it shouldn't matter this much how many likes you get on instagram what someone said to you yesterday what you know whatever it is how we're so anxious about things that we shouldn't need to be anxious about and we are not focusing on the things that we absolutely need to be anxious about that's right we've got our priorities all mucked up but as you say it's understandable because we're overwhelmed and we don't know what to
1: do and that's the really important bit that's why I devoted a third of the book to setting all of this up because I feel that on top of all of that stuff you just described we've also got this horrible guilt right this horrible oh, yeah. cringy guilt that we are complicit we are to blame and we're not doing anything and why aren't we doing anything and why aren't we caring more? And my point is maybe we've been prevented from caring. And I think that an understanding and some compassion as to why we have landed where we are is really required before we can then fire up and live in a different way. So to answer your question, how did I end up writing this book? I ended up writing it because I really wanted to find a path forward that was compassionate, that was understanding and reframed all of this through a different lens that might ignite activation and hope. I do it by really getting people to come back to the basics of our relationship with nature. And as you know, I hike around the world. I was already hiking around the world telling this story and then I realised, oh, my God, the answer's right in front of me. I'm doing it already. I walk in nature to connect to my thinking, to discerning thought that I can then write. That's the way we need to connect with discernment And really so much of what we're experiencing is a result of the fact that we don't give ourselves time and space to think about things in a discerning, meaningful way. So I do that and then I explore these kind of granular ideas that really ignite just this hope and joyfulness in me and have ignited that in other cultures throughout history and hopefully will ignite it. In others. Because what I felt was we can no longer talk CO2 tonnage and you know whether recycling works or not. Because that's not working clearly. Clearly. It's polarising us even more. And the studies show that mm. we need to actually find a way of doing this that's more charming than the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I set out to do. So I hike around mm. the world. I connect with nature. I show far more charming ways of doing this. I try to make it Sexy, which is my Cosmo background coming to the fore.
0: <laughs> you achieve it. It's a sexy book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, you're encouraging us to wake up, to hope, to ourselves. So, what does a woken up life look like
1: Ah, what does it mean to wake up that's an awesome question thank you in no particular order it's living at the edge it's living out on the outer limb i'm so glad you brought that up i really want to talk about the
0: edge why do we need to why aren't we what is going on there Okay,
1: so we have lived in a culture where we've been cocooned, technology, everything. We want to sit close to the trunk, right? Safety, we don't even have to worry or wonder how long our takeaway pizza, our delivery pizza will take. I mean, gosh... That would be so much uncertainty and horrible edge living to have to wonder how long it'll take because we've got a little orb on our app that shows us how where it's sitting in in the neighborhood as the uber driver you know delivers it to our door we have cocooned ourselves we've you know done all this stuff with our children where we prevent them from any risk and we've become the most risk adverse generation in history right at the time when we need to be cool with uncertainty, we need to be cool with risk and inventing new ideas because we're going to need it going forward. Now, that is a very stuffy, safe way to live and technology has enabled it. Going to the edge, that is where life happens. So, if you take the analogy of a tree, you go out to the other limbs, that is where you smell life. You get the wafts, the breeze and it's wobbly and uncertain and you've got to hold on and you've got to, I use this word quite a lot in the book, we've got to fend. Uh We've got to find ways of ebbing and flowing and using our faculties and that's creativity, right? It's making use of our strength, our stability, our core muscles, whatever it is, to stay stable and to then be able to be out there where life is happening. And it's at our edge where we're uncomfortable that we then create solutions. Do we know
0: where our edge is naturally? Or do We, we edge, do. Will we know when we're there? Yeah,
1: it's the easiest signal and that is you're uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> Which is why
1: we probably tend to avoid it. That's right. We run straight back to the trunk. And our culture has glorified that. Oh, self-care. You know, the self-care industry, oh, my God, it has It has done some terrible stuff and it's all about, oh, no, let's just have a nice self-care day. We'll light some candles and, no, we won't face that hard stuff. Or, oh, gosh, I'm not into politics. It's just too heavy, you know. It's all that kind of stuff, right? That's not living. That's existing. So we haven't had a dialogue around risk and edginess and that discomfort. There's some incredible thinkers, of course. Brene Brown, those kinds of thinkers are getting us a lot more understanding of the vulnerability. And I was just speaking to Seth Godin, who is one of my idols. He has spoken to this effect for 30 years in the realm of productivity and creativity, but we now need to apply it to simply existing. So the edge is where it all happens. And many philosophers from the ancient Greeks onwards have talked about this. It's not a new idea, but we've forgotten about it in the last couple of decades.
0: This episode of The Most of It is powered by Blue, the mic of the internet. If you're thinking about creating a podcast, starting a YouTube or Twitch channel, or even if you just make a lot of Zoom calls, take a minute to think about your audio quality. The Blue Yeti USB mic is the internet's most popular mic, and it's easy to see why. It's really simple to use, it delivers premium sound quality, and it even looks great too. I have been a huge fan of Blue for a long time. Not only do they make fantastic microphones that I know I can always rely on, but I also really love their values, which are all about helping people find and amplify their voices. So it's a great match for this podcast. I love how my Blue mic enables me to share my passion project with you and so to countless other creators all over the world. So if you're looking to bring pro-quality sound to whatever you do, Check out Blue, the mic of the internet.
1: What was your original question? The original question was...
0: The original one was, what does a woken up life look like? But then I I railroaded you because I wanted to talk about
1: the edge. (laughs) No, no. I've been able to cover up a couple of aspects. So living out at your edge and you know you're there because you're uncomfortable and Um, living an awoken life is also about being very aware when you're uncomfortable and coming to love it, coming to see that as a sign you're on the right track. Being aware is also about a certain type of wildness. And I use the word deviant. And I quote a couple of different thinkers in this context. And I think George Monbiot, who is a wonderful environmental writer for the guardian and he's been an activist for decades he says that it would and i think he's actually paraphrasing krishnamurti who originally said this that it is no sign of sanity to stay calm and peaceful when the world's falling apart i'm very much crudely paraphrasing but it's an entirely appropriate thing given where the world's at to be deviant to get wild and loose and deviant. And I know that there's a lot of people who found the protests and some of the other stuff that's been going on, like the Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera, even Greta Thunberg, some of that activity, find it really uncomfortable because, well, we should have a nice sane society. Well, the problem is we don't have a sane society. There's this incredible insanity that's going on and we understand why it's happening. It's capitalism run riot and every system has its... End point. And we're at the end point of the capitalist cycle. And we need to move on to a new version of it or a new way of interacting within capitalism. And it is appropriate that there's a disruption. So living in a live life also means getting wild, deviant, standing up for things, and doing stuff that is scary. I think there's a really great, I think it's a Rumi poem where he also talks about this, and he talks about throwing away your reputation. You know, I don't know if you recall that poem and I, I'd, I'd be wasting your time trying to flick to it in the book, but I think he says, be notorious. And I think uh-huh. that sort of, again, I'm, I'm really kind of trying to convey this idea of being wild. The other thing, the other word that I use throughout the book, or actually I build up to it, is becoming an adult. And such of the journey that I take the reader on and I go on myself is about leaving adolescence. Adolescence is a time where we've got an idea of consequences. As kids, we don't understand consequences. And, you know, we enter our teenage years and we start to understand that. We then move from adolescence into adulthood when we start to take responsibility. When we go, all right, I might not have made the mess, but it's my job to clean it up. You know, we stop going, well, why do I have to do it if Johnny down the road doesn't have to? It's a bit like going, well, why do I have to address our carbon emissions when China and India have got more people and are making more smoke than us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Adulthood is about it being painful and you do it anyway. You do what is required. And to go back to that wonderful quote by James Hollis, you know, that I mentioned at the beginning, our souls are calling us to an appointment with life we will get knocked down, we'll get sicknesses, we will potentially destroy ourselves if we keep ignoring those reminders. And so adulthood and and living an awake life is being attuned to those callings from our soul. Mm -hmm. And what we've got to do is step up and join life at the appointment and go, all right, life, what are you asking of me? And we be of service.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was one of my notes that I wrote down. Life, what are you Are you asking of me? It's such a beautiful question. And you you talk in the book about asking beautiful questions and the idea of being of service. We talk about that quite a lot in the podcast because it's obviously connected to meaning and purpose in life. I love the way you talk about it. You say, be of service, not a hero, which is kind of anathema to our culture, which is all about having personal stardom, being the center of your own personal stage and living life to the full means becoming a star and whatever star means to you. And that is impossible to do. It's incredibly overwhelming to have to have that as a goal. And if you haven't reached that goal, that means, okay, I'm not living my life to the full. I'm not making the most of it. When in fact, what you're talking about is far simpler to achieve and actually far more meaningful. Yeah. Could you talk about that a bit?
1: Oh, there's so much to unpack there. I think, again, going back to sort of having some understanding of why we are where we're at will help us to be able to move forward so we're not so overwhelmed with our guilt and sense of failure. We impose on ourselves but also on children this idea that go forward and find your purpose, right? Have a meaningful life, which would be all very well, Except that we don't have a discourse in our culture around meaning and what purpose should be about. If we had a a society rich in that kind of discussion, then maybe we could find our way to that result, right? That needs to be understood, and we need to give ourselves a break from that point of view. And I think. Oh, Elizabeth Gilbert said this really well quite recently when she was talking in Big Magic, I think it was, she used to say, find your purpose, you know, find meaning in your life and go forth and do that. And she qualified it in recent years, actually off the back of an Australian putting their hands up in the audience at one point and calling her on it. And she realised that far better way to go about things is to actually be curious instead and your curiosity will take you to something meaningful. I think in a similar light, I don't quite stick to that one. Um, I'll let Elizabeth Gilbert own that one. I think that we can start small and Pima Chodron says this, start where you are. If you're a nurse working night duty, if you're a mum with three kids, if you are a steel worker, and you're wondering what this is all about, that's your starting point. So, we don't have to have this big noble idea of saving the world. Change happens at the very ordinary level. And from the ordinary, we build, we build, we build, and momentum builds. And that's when some beautiful stuff happens. It doesn't happen when we think that it's all the way out there, you know, because what will invariably happen is that we'll see us become overwhelmed and we won't end up doing it. Being of service is very much keeping things very ordinary and it's about the process. Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, the title's somewhat ironic given that I'm using his ideas to dismantle the idea of a life of meaning, the qualities that saw people survive Auschwitz, and he was in there for four years. He got out and he wrote this book in nine days. It's a book that basically defines which men and women survived and which ones didn't. And the quality that he pins it down to is the people who had something to live for beyond themselves, i.e. they were being of service. So whether it was a wife or children somewhere in the world or whether it was God or whether it was a sense of humanity that they were attending to, they were living to be able to tell a story to the rest of humanity, that ensured their survival. And I think a lot of philosophers since then, he wrote that, what, in the 19, late 1940s, I suppose, a lot of people since then have referred to that as a really good starting point for discussing this. So being of service and living a life that's not about being a hero, but you know, being called to your appointment is very ordinary. It's as simple as having someone to love or work that is of service, but we're allergic to ordinary now, aren't we? We are. But isn't it a relief to know that that might be the answer?
0: It's such a <laughs> relief. In um, season one of, of the most of it, I interviewed a woman, Emily Esfahani Smith, who has written a book all about what humans find meaningful. I think you'd love yeah, it. Yes, so I'll send it, it to you afterwards. Yeah, it's basically that. It's finding having a purpose, and if your purpose is connected to being of service, then you will feel better about yourself and your life. I mean, this is the beautiful irony and perhaps confusing element of it that the more we focus on others and look outwards and what we can do for others as opposed to what we can do for ourselves seems to get us back to our nature, which is what you're talking about. It's kind of the most beautifully selfishly unselfish way to go about life because it will ultimately, you will benefit from being of service to other people.
1: That's right. It's completely doable and we don't have much time on the planet. So let's just do what's doable. We can't conquer capitalism. What we can do is live within a capitalist framework and do things at the granular level differently. Can you
0: give a few examples of that? I imagine people listening would be like, okay, yes, of course that sounds good. What What does that actually mean on a practical level.
1: Okay, I'll give you an example that I came across. You know the big September 2019 strikes, the school strike for climates that went around the world. I was trying to galvanize the people in my orbit to join it, right? And I was despondent. I was literally coming across people that were going, "Oh no, I'm a bit worried that there'll be a terrorism strike or they'll come up with all kinds of excuses." Anyway, I spoke to a friend, she's a mum with two ratbag bag kids and she was like, I just, you know, my life is purposeless, I can't do anything. And she said, look, my friends won't even go to this strike and maybe I won't go because it's too hard to get there and blah, blah, She said, well, I guess I could get a bus. And I said, yes, yes, let's do it. Put it up on Eventbrite. So she did that. She had this little sort of mini bus and she was able to get a couple of parents and their kids to go along. But it booked out within five minutes. So then she got a coach and then she got another coach And eventually, she ended up getting 150 people that wouldn't have otherwise gone to that strike. And I caught the bus home with one crew, you know, with one on one of the buses, and everyone was pumped. These were people who are now newly enrolled to that movement and kids who suddenly saw around them humans, adults who were caring about this. And then I shared it, I shared the story on my social media. And I'd say at least four or five other people very quickly activated the same thing, booked a Murray, you know, a coach, put it up on Eventbrite and did the same thing. So let's say we got this one friend of mine, Lucy, ended up probably getting 500 extra people to those strikes. Now, a small action within her realm. So she started where she was. She was a mum at a school with kids at a primary school. That was her reality. She started there. She didn't try to start up a charity over here, which, you know, would take ages to get off the ground. She did it straight away within her realm. And then what happened? It was so charming that it spread. And action and care begets action and care. We gravitate towards those kinds of stories and then we want to do the same. And so that's how change comes about. And Erica Chenoweth is a psychologist, an academic over in the States, and she did this big study with Yale um, where she looked at every protest movement from 1900 through to 2014. And what she found was that you only had to get 3.5% of any population, whether it's a town, a school, a country, to be engaged in peaceful protest and the change happens. So, a law will get reversed, et cetera, et cetera. And the examples are extensive. So, it doesn't take a huge amount of people. It's a small, ordinary change, which will then tip over and develop exponential growth. And that, I think, people find very activating and very encouraging. So, look, that's one example. I also think that even though focusing on recycling or carrying a keep cup to your cafe and things like that can distract people and make people think, oh, I've done enough. I also do think it enrols people and they start to feel, and like I said, I just spoke to Seth Godin this morning and he talks about tribes. To make something sexy, you know, he's got the marketing brain on, you've got to make people believe that they belong to something and you've got to actually be a wonderful advertisement for that crew, for that tribe. The best thing you can do is start so close to home, start with yourself and make it as charming as possible. So make recycling look fun. Make using up your food scraps. And by the way, as a tangible project drawdown, which actually looks at the biggest carbon emission practices in the world, has identified that food waste is the number three culprit.
0: I was so shocked to read that in your book. Mm. I have to admit, I was completely ignorant about
1: that element. So when you actually show people that these are things very close to home and we can all make an impact and it only takes three and a half percent of people to be really actively engaged for something for an idea to start taking off, just start making combating food waste a really cool thing to do. And so I, as you know, I go to restaurants, I take people's butter, strangers. If strangers leave their butter on a, on a plate, I'm like, can I have that? You're amazing, Sarah. (laughs) I mean, I look like a really normal person, right? I've got glass.
0: She really does. We're on a Zoom and we can see each other. She looks totally normal. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'm not scary. And so they go, shit, if that ordinary looking woman in her late 40s can do that and make it look kind of fun, then I'll do it too. So I just do all kinds of weird. I do all kinds of weird. I don't own a car. I ride a bike everywhere. I turn up to red carpet events, I turn up to cocktail parties in high heel shoes on my bike and I just do it and I'm trying to change the optics. It's me as one ordinary person shifting the dial, making the alternative look charming. That is the job that we've got.
0: That is such an important thing to remember, make it look charming, because we all know the cliche of a protester that's angry and yelling and makes people feel really uncomfortable and withdraw from the conversation as opposed to feeling like they're invited into it. Do you have any advice then for how you can broach conversations with people in your life about this. Yeah, I do. Okay,
1: great. Yeah, Yeah. I know exactly what you mean (laughs) because I had to go down and think about that for myself at some point. The the fact of the matter is, as hard as it is to accept that talking facts and figures actually polarises people more. So, And because what you're doing is you're trying to combat belief with science and you're talking two different languages. We're not going to hear each other. I think the thing to do is actually, again, live out your message. And so, for instance, if somebody's trying to sort of talk stuff about how the science, let's say the science isn't conclusive, I try to go so gentle and charming and smiley just to make them feel very comfortable around this and that we're discussing something. And I start to sort of discuss it at that level. So, what I'll say is, oh, yeah, well, You know, sometimes I get really confused, you know, around that. I've started to question things, but a lot of the question marks around the science was actually pushed 30 years ago by Exxon because they needed to push it. They basically they couldn't say the science was wrong because that's easy to refute. So they just basically said, Oh, it's not conclusive, and we all started to believe it. And it's a bit like the tobacco industry, they had messages and stuff like that. You know, that's why we we came to believe that. But I think we're really starting to shift. On that and I really do believe the scientists and I'm also seeing it with my own eyes you know so I talk about it from my belief my point of view there's facts in there but I take it through the lens of how I believe and incorporate it into my life and how I've had to come through that same journey so confronting with facts and figures doesn't really help That said, the facts and the figures do need to be circulated, but that's the job of documentaries and the news and politicians. They need to be talking this stuff and it needs to be scary. The environmental movement, and I use those words on purpose, the environmental movement has been talking in terms of saving koalas and saving the planet. It's a distraction. We need to face the fact that we are the sixth extinction. The planet will survive The planet will go on as it has before and a number of the animals that we're worried about may actually repopulate if we're off the planet. We are actually the ones that are at risk and we've Mm. got to start realising that and we've got to start talking about it in terms of our children and that kind of thing. One of the most successful ways to get through to a climate denialist and the majority of climate denialists are white, middle-aged, middle-class men is their daughters teenage daughters. Mm. So if we can educate kids and if they can speak this language, they are the best tool. So that's something to bear in mind.
0: That's really great, practical, um, straightforward advice. So thank you. I was just thinking as you were talking, the type of writing and the opinions that you've been putting out for a long time now are very challenging ones because they challenge the essence of the people that we have become. It feels very brave to me that you are doing this because I think it must take a lot of courage. So I think I have two parts to this question. Suffering from anxiety, do you think it is easier or harder to put yourself out there? And also, do you think bravery is something that
1: can be worked on? To the first one, I'll sort of answer the question with the answer that I'd like to give. It doesn't quite answer the question, but having anxiety, the climate movement and my engagement in it, I would have to say, has been a salve. So if you look at Greta, she was having all kinds of self-harming issues. She didn't speak for a year. Apparently, I think she has autism, et cetera, et cetera. She didn't leave her bedroom for a year and, and was almost mute. Wow. She then got engaged in climate activism and essentially she came into her own. And I would say that for the anxious, the climate movement is a place for us. It's appropriate to be anxious, right? And our skills in terms of hypervigilance, in terms of hypercare are really required. And so I've actually found a place, an outlet for the angst and the itch I've been feeling for a very long time. I believe my anxiety has in part stemmed from a sense that we are not on the right track. I'm not on the right track, nor is the humanity around me.
0: And you mean that on a, I imagine, quite a deep level. So there's this disconnect at a deep level, which has many fronds of anxiety, anxiety masquerading as other things. That's right.
1: There's all kinds of diagnoses for anxiety, right? You know, and they have names and labels, and they're appropriate to a certain extent. But I think anyone listening out there who's got anxiety, when I say, "All right, this is a sense we're not on the right track," they're anxious, have this kind of innate sense that all is not right, and. You know, when we stare at the ceiling in the middle of the night, yeah, we're fretting about our maths exam or this or that, but really deep down, it's a sense that this is bullshit, right? So, I think that the climate movement has become a place where I can actually put that to good use because part of the anxiety, and from first we make the beast beautiful, I talk about this a lot, when we get anxious about being anxious, we then get anxious about being anxious about being anxious, and that's when anxiety becomes just this snowball, right? I'm anxious It's entirely appropriate that I'm anxious and then it stops there because I then go and get involved. A lot of climate psychologists talk about the fact that engagement and activism is one of the best fixes for climate anxiety. Facing it as opposed to running away from it. Correct. What was the second part of your question? Let me speak to that.
0: Yeah, you've sort of answered uh, if having anxiety makes it easier or harder to put yourself out there. Yeah. Do you think bravery is something that can be cultivated?
1: Yeah, it's a practice like everything else. So going to your edge, um, I practice it physically because I need the sensation. I need to feel alive. So I've always done things like I took up ocean swimming when I am a really bad swimmer, but I do it. I just walked down to go in the ocean pool one day and I went, you know what, I'm going to swim across the bay. And yes, there's a shark alarm, but I swam it this side of the shark alarm. I just did it. And I need to do that a fair bit. I used to do downhill mountain bike racing and I've done a bunch of different things. The physical can get me into that space and and access that wild deviantness that I seek. It's a mindset that enables me to be brave in appropriate ways in the rest of my life. Now that's not going to suit everyone. I also hitchhike. I plunge myself into scary things all the time. And at this stage in my life, I'm able to accept that that's just what I do and that I'm feeling some fear because that's what I need to feel alive. So I think all of us can do little steps like that. We can walk down the street and speak to a stranger who makes our coffee, you know, just push your boundary a little bit by little bit and you start to get the reward from it, the feedback from life. Aliveness meets aliveness, you know, Mm. and so it becomes more charming than the status quo. The other thing that I would say is, I study and I have a chapter in the book called Becoming a Soul Nerd, reading about other incredible people throughout history who have existed in similar times and have gone out and been brave and been the deviant one that has, you know, done something remarkable. That to me is one of the best fixes the best motivators for me. So I read biographies. I think it was D.H. Lawrence. No, S. Scott Fitzgerald said to his nephew, he was providing comfort to a a boy in his 20s and who was feeling angst. And he said, look, one of the great things about the human endeavour is that people have experienced the same pain before you. And thankfully, they've mostly written about it. So writers are a tortured lot, and uh, have tended, which is fantastic, because they can then write about it. You know, absolutely. And so, yeah. my soul nerd, I go and read about people who have experienced similar pain and frustration as myself, and I develop wisdoms and um, I learn from them. And and that's something that I I think really does work. And it's a skill. It's right there. We've all got a library around the corner. You know, it's mm-hmm. something we can do. It's ordinary.
0: I imagine because your books are so confronting that you have an amazing groundswell of support and love and affirmation and gratitude from millions of people all over the world, but I imagine you have a fair few people who are too confronted by what you're saying and perhaps write some negative comments. Which you know, a lot of us don't have it on that scale, but we all have that on a micro scale of having to deal with conflict and and difficult difficult people. I'm doing this mm. in inverted commas, having difficult conversations. How do you manage that? And do you have any advice for dealing with really uncomfortable feedback that we might get about ourselves?
1: Yeah, um, one just get older because you have less if I can say this less, you might need to bleep it, less fucks to give about the wrong things. Absolutely say <laughs> it. not bleeping it at all. <laughs> and, um, and as a woman in particular, I think that happens. Um, we start to feel okay about not accommodating everybody's needs and needing approval from everyone to feel safe as we get older. So that's one thing and that's what I love about getting older. I've also got a technique that I developed when I was sort of, I've been in social media a long time, I was an early adopter It was a technique that I developed where I saw an insult coming my way as like a tennis ball and I could put energy into trying to hit it back or I could just let it flop flaccidly behind me and move on and that's what I choose to do. It's quite interesting. Every now and then if I see somebody is legitimately challenging me and they are really genuinely worked up about it, they're not just being a troll who's just trying to assert their control on me because they just don't like that I exist, and that happens a lot because you, you do, you hold a mirror up to people's discomfort. That's something that I accept as well. I do have to accept that that's what I do and I do it in the public realm, but I'm also aware it happens in my private realm. Uh-huh, and right. yeah, not just around this stuff, but just in general, you question something and it forces people to question stuff that you, you pick the scab off their wound for them and they don't like it. And I understand no, that. It's,
0: it's uncomfortable and we're not used to
1: being uncomfortable that's right that's right and yeah I can tell the difference and and when somebody's genuinely questioning and they're perplexed I have been known quite often to meet up with people Um, so scientists used to question me on the sugar stuff you know and I would meet up with them and um, not all of them would say yes but the ones who are genuine would and I've become friends with a lot of them so I, I would have done that I don't know Six to seven, eight times where I've literally met up in that sort of format. But yeah, mostly you do have to let it go because again, we're short on time and I just need to keep moving forward and I need to focus on looking comfortable with what I believe is the truth, um, living it out in a way that is more charming than the status quo and hopefully that will actually get the message through but you do have to have thick skin and I will tell you I guess at a very intimate personal level I have had to accept that almost I mean this is sounding very martyrish but at this stage in my life I've had to accept this is my lot in life if I choose to go out there and to sort of call out the warning to say the stuff that I do it comes with a lot of joy. It comes with its rewards, but it also comes with an incredible amount of loneliness. And mm-hmm. that is something that I just accept now. It's not ideal. I wish it could be some other way, and especially as a woman, a woman in the culture I live in, it's a funny one. you know It has rendered me single for 15 years. I don't have children as a related result, but that's my journey. So it's an acceptance. Do you
0: feel like you're still in a dance with those decisions and have to keep remaking them?
1: Yes, but I also accept that I have made those decisions repeatedly and there's no going back. This is who I am. So if anything, I'm refining. My work at the moment is being comfortable with those decisions and then owning it like a motherfucker. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm going to be single and childless, I'm going to fully own this. I am going to max this. And so I've made some decisions off in recent years as to how I'm going to do that. I'm getting more and more serious, more and more deliberate about it. Mm -hmm. I don't have the time or the energy to have any regrets. Regrets takes up too much emotional energy. It literally does. It's not a life hack. It's actually I've got to a point where I just can't do that any longer I do put things in place to just keep moving forward away from that sense of regret.
0: Yeah, it's such good advice and such a wise way to live your life. It seems like two really important pillars are acceptance, simultaneous with action. Yes. So you're accepting what what is, because what's the point in railing against it, but knowing that you have every power to move forward in the direction that you want from these current
1: circumstances. And I would even rephrase that by replacing but with and. Uh Uh-huh. Accept and move forward. Like I said in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, you can have raging anxiety and you can have a productive, wonderful life. It's an overlapping Venn diagram rather than one that's about exception.
0: So you love humanity. You are here to serve humanity. What is your hope for humanity?
1: Oh, my hope is that we do achieve what we're all hoping we can do, which is to save this one wild and precious life. And mostly because the joy and the sense of just arrival, adult arrival that we will experience when we reach that point I think it'll just be so wonderful. You know, I think I've got another 40 years left on this planet, if not longer. I want to see that moment. I want to be there when we go, oh, my God, we did this. You know, it's like that. I use that example of the football team that's the losing side. And then um, something kicks in, in the last, you know, 30 seconds where this kamikaze mode happens, where something magic happens and they pull all their energy together. And somehow out of nowhere, in the last two seconds, they keep the goal, place the try, do the home run, whatever. I'm clearly not a sporting person. And people go, oh my God. And they're the games that go down in history. We've evolved in all kinds of wonderful ways. I hope the culmination of that is this wonderful hitting the home run moment in the final two seconds. And hopefully we'll do it in the last five seconds, not the last one second.
0: To give us a little bit of a break. That's right. Well, that is a beautiful hope. Thank you so much for giving up your time today. Uh, Before I let you go, I do always ask my guests the same final three questions. So if if we could finish with these. The first one is, what is the most significant lesson that you've learned?
1: Well, I'll speak to Seth Godin, what he taught me, which is give first. Real artists give first and then the rest follows. Beautiful.
0: What is the lesson that you are still learning?
1: Oh, let it go, let it go, let it go.
0: <laughs> also a great one. I can also say I'm still letting that yeah. one. <laughs> and, um, And just a, a small question to finish off with, uh, Sarah Wilson, how do we make the most of our lives? Oh, we live it at the edge and we live it like we mean it. Beautiful. Thank you so much for talking to me and just Thank you on behalf of humanity for everything you are doing to galvanise into much-needed action. So thank you so,
1: so very much. Oh, thank you. And uh, I just love speaking to my, my New Zealand cousins. I miss you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she is quite something, right? A truly amazing woman. Now, if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed about the magnitude of the issues we were discussing and you want to do something but you're not quite sure where to begin, then I would recommend reading Sarah's book. It is a great place to start and has lots of ideas about things that um, we can do right now. So thank you so much for listening and if you did like what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe to most of it as that helps other people know that we're around. And once again, thank you so much to my producers, The Raw Collective.